breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. And welcome back to another week, another episode, another adventure in Reformation on Reform This. Always uh, looking for the latest to give you a little bit of uh, insight into things that just sort of fly through the news uh, information and where we can learn a little bit about what should be done, what can be done, what is being done in the elements of radical Islam, national security, foreign policy, domestic policy against domestic terrorism, radical Islamism, and anything else that might be on top of mind this week. Thanks for joining me. If you're back, thanks for joining us again on this podcast with the Blaze Podcast Network. It is just an honor to be with all of you, and I hope you find what you're looking for and you keep coming back. Please, if you like the podcast, rate us on iTunes and at theblaze.com backslash podcasts. Listen, you know, this week, you can't help we cannot ignore what has been happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban. There is a supposedly historic peace agreement after negotiations with the Taliban as the United States is looking to basically pull out all troops. Now, they say all troops, as uh, President Trump campaigned on doing. And, uh, you know, to be honest, for those of you who follow me here, you know that I have, that is, I've been pretty static on my issues, pretty consistent on my beliefs, uh, gosh, I, I think for decades. But on this one, I've evolved. 18 years in Afghanistan, our troops have done heroic work in targeting Al-Qaeda, getting bin Laden, which he ultimately was in Pakistan, and keeping us safe. But continued two presence is not proving to have any value other than possibly intelligence. But the downsides appear to be more than the upsides, and I've had an evolution there. But first, before we get into exactly what's happening and what this peace agreement and surprise, surprise, is being effectuated through Doha, Qatar, Qatar, the Islamist, promiscuous whores of political Islam, as they are in bed with Iran, the Khomeinists, they're in bed with the Muslim Brotherhood, all in, as you see, with 90% of Al Jazeera's propaganda. Employees are Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood. And now, surprise, surprise, as we saw when President Obama released six prisoners from, uh, from Gitmo, which country facilitated there to ensure us that they wouldn't be committing acts of terror? Qatar. And surprise, surprise, that now this agreement is signed, sealed, and delivered in Qatar and Doha. But before I even get to that, did you all see what the hell, what the, what incarnation was published by the New York Times this week? I kid you not. I kid you not. And I know, I know, you're like, why do you even look at that? Why is it even a piece of news? Nothing surprises us out of the New York Times. Well, listen, this is is equivalent of publishing an op-ed 
by Goebbels or Hitler during World War II? Would they have done that? The New York Times just published propaganda by Sirajuddin Haqqani. Yes, one of the lead Haqqanis of the Haqqani network. And if you look at the FBI's most wanted list, his name is on there. His name is on there for orchestrating, orchestrating the murder, kidnapping, and torture of thousands, Americans and otherwise. How does a newspaper of record in New York end up publishing, communicating with the PR arm of somebody on the FBI most wanted list for terrorism, for crimes against humanity? And yeah, I know it's sort of like Bashar Assad when he got interviewed by, oh, I don't know which one of the uh, idiots on uh, uh, one of the major news networks that decided that that would be newsworthy to interview a genocidal mass killer responsible for the death of over half a million Syrians and 10 million displaced, if not hundreds of thousands, if not more, tortured. And somehow an interview with him, which, by the way, he then posted per minute, per without any clips cut out on his own Syrian propaganda network press television, which tells you how hard-hitting those interviews are. They post them immediately. Because the key is not anything he says is all fiction. It's all fabricated. It's not news. But interviewing Sirajuddin Haqqani, who's on a terror list, who's on a most wanted list, under the title of what we, the Taliban, want. What we, the Taliban, want. He says, I'm convinced that the killing and the maiming must stop. The deputy leader of the Taliban writes... And if you believe that, if you believe that, you need your head examined. The Taliban is a fascistic, supremacist, radical, militant organization who has continually lied, deceived, bargained with the worst, most criminal agents of Islamist terror on the planet, and cooperated with them as they fight in Syria, as they fight in Iran as they fight in Iraq and work with agents of terror across the planet. Yes, we should leave Afghanistan and treat it the way we do Somalia, the way we do other countries that are havens for terrorism. The deal may be something important. I think the deal has a, has a lot to be complimented on when it comes to Secretary Pompeo's work, especially in his staff. It's a lot further than other administrations have gotten, but don't believe for a second, don't believe for a second that it should in any way change our belligerence against the Taliban, that if whatever sanctions and, and attempts to bring these people to justice, that we should not do that. 
It just means that we are leaving and there's an agreement there to try to maintain peace and no violence on the ground against the Afghani people. And the weakest, as some in the media have, in the talking head punditry have said, the weakest part of that agreement is the fact that there's no political solution. There's no engagement and entanglement of the political structure of Afghanistan with that solution. So therefore, it may be doomed to fail, but at least it is a mechanism for departure that we can hold them accountable to. And I think that's the value of that. I would not have used Qatar. Maybe they had to. I would have made it a lot more public as far as the details of what exactly we're going to hold them accountable to. Remember, these people are not rehabilitable. They can't be rehabilitated. The the, the prisoners we had at Gitmo are back on the war battlefields. When Qatar said they would make sure they didn't show up and that they were tracked, many of them did. But... For the newspaper to publish an op-ed where Haqqani lies through his teeth about him not wanting violence, etc. That is just a, a mechanism. All the parties in Afghanistan were cheering. But the most militants were the most cheering. When the United States now is getting closer to announcing a departure from Afghanistan. So make no mistake, they know that the adults are leaving the stage. They know that the killings that included the deaths of countless American soldiers through terrorism done just last week and two weeks before that and a month before that, attack after attack, And it's not surrender for us to leave there. It is a chaotic, tribal, warlord's mess that we can't clean up. We did did an act of justice by destroying the Taliban the first time in the fall of 2001 after 9-11. We did an act of justice by attempting to help a transition towards a free government and society and elections. We did an act of justice even though it failed. So to all the fake social justice warriors, no, you can't monopolize the term justice. Justice doesn't always mean that things turn out right or things turn out better. It just means that we tried our best to number one, defeat Al-Qaeda and what they did in setting up shop in Afghanistan. And number two, leave the place a better place than we found it. But we should have realized, I should have realized five, ten years ago, that it wasn't going to work. I thought it was because of Obama's failures and his timidity against Iran and the, the Islamist radicals that allowed the likes of the Taliban to continue to grow, but... That's one part of it, the, the reality now that we see with the feared Trump administration that that has decreased their belligerence now as they fear us. But it hasn't changed the chaos, the corruption, the violence, the lack of 
assessment of, a, of the lack of respect for what an Afghani state is. And I'll tell you, at the end of the day, we need to leave because Afghanistan will never be a free democracy until the definition of an Afghani population, of an Afghanistan state, and its flag is one that is not wedded to an Islamic state. So there needs to be an awakening. There needs to be a spring, a civil war against the Islamists, against the corruption. Karzai, our man, turned out to simply be our man and was corrupt. He didn't oversee an evolution of a state that evolved towards democracy and righteousness and and critical thinking. There were no mechanisms set up to keep the, the Taliban in check and place. It continued to be a, a, a mafiesque competition of tribes. So for whatever it's worth, worth, hats off to the Trump administration, President Trump, Secretary Pompeo for effectuating a departure, which I agree with now. Hats off to the ability to at least call a spade a spade, will let the fascists, the Islamofascists of the Taliban do what they want as long as they're nonviolent and will let the Afghani population stand up for their own rights because we're done losing our treasure, our, our blood of our sons and daughters in a war that is going nowhere in Afghanistan. But for the New York Times to publish a piece by a wanted fascistic terrorist tells you about the compass of the left. The compass. The compass of the left, as I talked about a few episodes ago, shifts shifts on the winds of partisanship. Shifts on the winds of partisanship. It is not about what is most right. It is, is they published Javed Zarif and his defense of the nuclear deal from Iran, another fascist. They published uh, Erdogan, a tyrannical totalitarian that is destroying Turkey as we know it. But did they publish Muslim reformers and liberals? There's a few you can think of, but not in any way to palpate the reality of the platforms we need against the militants of the Iranian regime, the Islamists of of the Taliban or the Muslim Brotherhood. They even published a guy from the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt who supported terrorism and claimed that the Muslim Brotherhood was moderate. So the vast majority of the time, the New York Times is not publishing Muslim reformers who seek to condemn political Islam, but they will publish. And there are some notable exceptions. But even the ones that they do often have an anti-Israel narrative or otherwise. But I fear, what is the compass? If, if, if our... Primary newspapers and media arms on the left don't have a compass that's based on universal human rights, that's based on the defense of the principles that we share all over the planet as humanitarians. 
but instead it's based on letting a terrorist speak because it makes things neater and easier for people to understand. And, oh, by the way, it's a little anti-Trump too. Why not? That is a recipe to continue to drive America towards defeat. Defeat because we no longer are about Americanism. That is about universal human rights. That is about freedom, liberty, free speech, anti-blasphemy laws, anti-Islamism, anti-theocracy. It becomes about kowtowing to our enemies. The left claims to be anti-Russia, but yet nothing about Russian interference in Syria or Iran. The left claims to be pro-gay, pro-women, pro-feminism. And yet the revolutions in Iran are ignored, are treated as aberrations that are sure to fail and not part of a coherent American policy. Seriously? That's where we're headed. So then you wonder why, when you have staffers at Rashida Tlaib's office or at Ilhan Omar's congressional office that used to work for the National Iranian American Council, which is an apologetic lobby affiliated with the Khomeinists ideologically, apologists for the Khomeinists and the Iranian regime, the theocrats, ideologically, as seen court cases in which court records show the close, the close brotherhood between Nayak and the Iranian regime. But some of their progeny some of their farm teams then end up joining these offices. And I'm sure they end up working as interns and as young, quote-unquote, journalists, which they're not, propagandists more like, at the New York Times. And then you wonder, so my question is, how does Javid Zarif end up writing an op-ed communicating with the New York Times and having it published? More importantly, how does a wanted criminal uh, the Taliban end up writing a piece and editing it along with, back and forth, with the staff at the New York Times. If that SOB called me and wanted to write an op-ed, and we publish other op-eds at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy of folks that we work with, that we think alike with, think similar to, at our website at AIFdemocracy.org. But I guarantee you we'd never publish anything from fascists as a mechanism to show what they're thinking because it's lies they are inherently corrupt next next I will tell you that I do think that uh, ultimately that that peace that policy, rather, may work for a few months, but it will fall apart, and we will ultimately go back to the paradigm of the 20th century, which is targeted security operations against impending threats as they exist in the area. That's it. Next, there were some recent reforms put in in which 
the criminal justice system had basically said that it was no longer going to withhold names. And the bipartisan, there was a bipartisan response that applauded that ultimately in New York, for example, certain criminal justice processes that as of January 1st, 2020, if you report a crime, according to the Center for Security Policy, if you report a crime in New York, your contact information will end up in the possession of any suspect of police arrest associated with your report. Again, this is part of the response, the clamoring of people not knowing who identifies them and, and who's, uh, who's complaining about them. But the issue is, is these folks wipe out their enemies. These folks target and threaten and kill witnesses. And as the center points out, there's no exception in the law requiring disclosure of witnesses' personal information to the defendants when it comes to violent offenders. The New York disclosure law is particularly disturbing because New York City has long been considered America's top terrorist target. So, as the center says, in other words, someone who reports suspicious activity or the possible planning or plotting of a terrorist act in New York law enforcement may have his or her information shared with the terrorist suspects. I have to tell you, as somebody in this work, in counterterrorism, in counter-ideology, one of the reasons I'm so public and do as much public work as possible is I want the price that anyone who decides to attack me or do anything publicly to be very high because our platform is large. The larger the platform, the higher the price they pay for either verbally hating us, attacking us, or physically. But some people don't, most people who report, see something, say something, don't have platforms. I've talked to women victims that even go to the police and are ready to put their names, but they're ignored. They're ignored about domestic violence, about, about other aspects of reporting of crimes and threats and abuse and treated different. Again, maybe because of culture, maybe because of religious protection, identity politics, but treated different than the Me Too movement even now that has grown over the last two, three years. This new law may have already played a role in the murder of a witness against the transnational criminal organization MS-13. There's a case discussed about that. And for years, I've testified to Congress five or six times, initially with the Homeland Security Committee on, with Chairman King, Peter King from New York. And he had an all-Muslim panel in which people reported and testified. We testified about how difficult it is to discuss these issues because you're targeted in the community. A Somali-American, Abdul Razak Bihi, described how he in Minneapolis, oh, look, you know what's happened in Minneapolis since then, how he in Minneapolis was targeted because he disagreed and did not like the mechanism by which CARE manipulated, the Council on American Islamic Relations manipulated and controlled the community to feel inferior, to feel victims, and to avoid reporting things going on internally. Witness after witness has reported this after working for CARE from chapters like San Diego and elsewhere. 
And now more laws are coming in which the witnesses are being held out in ways that defies their ability to be protected. I'm concerned. Every platform we have continues to be pulled out because there is no organized mechanism, no organized mechanism at fighting this, at maintaining priorities when it comes to protecting those who share our values and have the courage to report, have the courage to report against those who target us violently and who do not share our values. And last one quick note, this last week, a number of senators, including Senator Chris Murphy decided to meet with the, meet with the, I was going to say Taliban, meet with the Iranian leadership, Javed Zarif and others. What is the point? What is the point? Other than undermining the leadership of President Trump, if there's anything, regardless of what you think of our president, he is the commander in chief. His role constitutionally is to set foreign policy and domestic security against foreign threats. That is why he's commander-in-chief. Secretary Pompeo called him out. During a trip in Africa, he said, I don't know what these senators are doing meeting with enemies of the United States like Javed Zarif, who we are trying to contain through maximum pressure. So, whether it's the New York Times or a far-left senators who never saw an Islamist organization they didn't like. This is the same senator that identified my organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, as a hate group, he said, on this floor of the Senate because of our Islamophobia. <laughs> I called him out for it. You can Google it. But all it does is tell you a lot about the ignorance and how horrifically idiotic these organizations and this senator is. But he's not alone. The members of Congress that would have ever breathed idiocy like BDS has gone from two or three, five, six years ago to now over a hundred that signed on with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and their nonsense and support of BDS. Now, I don't know if it's that many members that support it, but all I can tell you is that the numbers that support legislation that sympathetic to their anti-Semitism is growing. And they're causing a, a significant reduction in our security and our principles and our priorities. Well, a lot more to come next week. It was great talking to you this week. Thanks for tuning in to uh, the podcast. Reform this. Share it with your friends. Rate us. Review us on, on iTunes. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, or at Reform This Radio. Find the podcast at theblaze.com backslash podcast or on iTunes. This is Zudi Jasser for Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.